Hello and welcome to the Network Collective Community Roundtable. Today we have Chris Cummings and Tom Hollingsworth joining us to chat about what's going on in the industry. No central theme, no agenda, just a bunch of networking geeks sitting around the virtual roundtable. So settle in and we'll be right back with today's episode. So before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to tell you about today's sponsor, who is Unimus. Unimus is a fast to deploy and easy to use network automation and configuration management solution. So you can learn more about how you can start automating your network in under 15 minutes at unimus.net slash NC. And we're definitely going to be talking more about them later on in the show. So guys, welcome to the show. Um, Chris, I think this is your first time being on the show. Um, you've been in Network Collective membership for a while now. So I've interacted with you for, for quite some time, but uh, this is your this is your first time. There's a couple of things, people can't see it. Um, Chris has a better microphone than I do, which makes me feel a little bit odd because you know I'm the host of the podcast and he comes with the with the big guns. But other than that, Chris, man, it's good to have you here. Um, it's good to what be you, here. Yeah, what are, you, what are you working on recently? Well, uh, I've been face deep in firewalls lately. Um, we're in a big project of uh, segmenting our WAN at this point in time. So uh, basically, firewall logs are my life. Um, but when I haven't been doing that, or well, before I really got deep into that, it was a lot of data center networking. Um, we're also doing a, a kind of finished up a data center overhaul uh, of our DC. So putting in some EVPN VXLAN fabric design there. And uh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. And you work in an interesting segment, right? You work in mining. I do, yeah. I work yeah. for a company called Core Mining, um, so it's a very unique place to work. It's a, you know, one of the uh, we're called a junior mining company, so you know, one of the smaller, more nimble companies, but international. It's a great place to work. Lots of experience to a wide breadth of technologies. Yeah, that's cool. I always love the the, the niche things, like the places where <laughs> networking doesn't always work the same way as it does everywhere else. No, right? it does not. <laughs> so, so Tom, um, I don't believe this is your first time on the show. I think you've been on quite a few times. Uh, at this point, I think you have like a, a bed in the back or something like that where you can come hang out. But anyway, what have you been up to? Oh, you well, I've been uh, writing my tail off i think i burned up a keyboard the other day uh just just with trying to get content out uh the floodgates have opened back up everybody's doing their releases so i've been taking briefings left and right and then i've been lining up uh second half for uh field day uh i'm sure everybody out there knows that i do all the exciting stuff at field day which would be networking wireless and security booze storage booze storage uh we <laughs> at this recording we've got uh mobility field day next week We've got a networking field day coming up in September. We just added a security field day back to the calendar in October. And Stephen and I are trying to plan an AI-related field day. So, yeah, it's going to be fun. So so for those who don't know, I think it's probably worth taking a second just to kind of point out Tech Field Day and what that is. Because I imagine there's some people listening who haven't heard about Tech Field Day. And it is just an unbelievable resource. So Tech Field Day matches up engineers like us with companies who are releasing products to have very geeky conversations about the things that they're doing. Um, so it's a great way to learn about products. Now, it's not just us talking, because it'd be cool if we're talking in a room and we were getting a briefing, but what happens is it's live streamed and it's recorded, so you can go listen in on the conversation either while it's happening or after the fact. I can't tell you the number of times I've said, I need to get up to speed on technology X. I search YouTube, and the first thing I come up with is a field day video. So it's completely possible you've watched a video and, and just had no idea that it actually was field day. But as an organization, it's great. I've been involved with networking field day for quite some time now. Um, and and there's like like Tom was talking about, there's all these different verticals and, and technology specialties that are very, very cool. Uh, so you should definitely go check them out, techfieldday.com, gestaltit.com. Uh, lots of interesting content there. That's where Tom is, is constantly writing and putting stuff out and, and all of that. So Tony. Tony, I've heard you, you're, you're like, got all of the sleep. <laughs> you've, yeah. been working, you've been working on cutovers and, and, and doing the middle of the night but, thing. So, yeah, uh, that, so what are you up to, man? You're still on yeah. that same project, right? The one with the, same, with the firewalls? Same, same project still going, should be wrapped up um, end of uh, August, maybe September. Uh, yeah, you know, like most cutovers, they have to happen at night. They have to happen off business hours. The network is critical infrastructure at this point. And um, so we want to have as minimal impact as we can. So... That means I've had three hours of sleep in one hour segments throughout the day today. And um, uh, I'm very tired, but it's a very exciting lifestyle. I mean, 
I didn't just want a nine to five and sit and, and type on the computer. I wanted to do something exciting. And when you have those overnight cutovers, it's very cool the sort of camaraderie that comes out in your team because you're all either sitting at home or in the office. It's up late. Everyone's drinking coffee or Red Bull. You ordered takeout. You know, you have that sort of camaraderie. It's a very cool experience to have those those late night cutovers. But last night was one for the books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It was uh, one of those. It went that well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of things went wrong. Um, um, ultimately, we didn't have any tickets in the morning, but we do have some failed devices. And um, we're just rolling with the punches uh, throughout the day. And I also want to point out Chris Cummings' uh, microphone. He has the only microphone that has flair. Uh, he has like a, a, a 3D printed uh, like router icon. Uh, do, yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of things that people can't see, which is excellent for a podcast, but it is there. I mean, he's got the 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 BA microphone with the flare and I'm feeling rather inferior at the moment. But anyway, it's all good. <laughs> so I've been working a lot in SD-WAN and that market has been a little interesting lately. We've seen some fairly large moves in the market. So a few weeks ago, we saw Palo Alto come out and pick up CloudGenix. I want to talk about that. But even more recently, we saw Silver Peak come get picked up by HPE Aruba. And I, I Tom, I'm going to point at you because I know you spend a lot of time in the SD-WAN space like I do. I would love to get your take, and, and I'd like to start the conversation there specifically about the Silver Peak deal, and then eventually we'll, we'll talk about CloudGenix as well. Uh, so what, what's, what, do we, what are your thoughts? So it was interesting to see that Silver Peak got snapped up for just just shy of a billion dollars in cash, not a stock transaction. That was cash money on the table. Um, that tells me that HPE is expecting to make a fortune off of this. In fact, they say that the, the deal will be cash positive in, in 2022. So they're picking up a lot of customers. Um, this is interesting to me because Aruba, well, okay. Let, let's clarify. HPE paid for the company, but Aruba is going to run it because Aruba is their networking division. Um, Aruba had a branch solution, an SD branch solution. They've been touting it for the last, what, 18 months or so. Um, it was focused on campus. And I think that the future of SD-WAN is not the campus. The future of SD-WAN is cloud. It's on-ramp. It's application inspection. And it's application inspection outbound. You, you can't see it on the video, but I'm waving my hand toward the cloud. Um, the reason why is because we're not really gaining much in the branch right now. I mean, policy is great. We love that. We love a lot of the stuff that's been worked on right now is unifying wired and wireless policy, but that can only take you so far. And this was, they needed this because they developed this in house. But when you look at the timeline from, was it back in like 2017 when they really started working on this? Um, they were developing an out-of-date SD-WAN solution at the time. And, and no fault of their own. They were working with what they had. The problem was is that the people who had already built it were ahead of where they were. Look at all of the traditional, what I would consider the first-generation vendors, but Palo Cloud, CloudGenix, um, they're all gone. They all got snapped up. And so you look at who's been bought recently, CloudGenix and... Um, Silver Peak, and they both got bought by companies that had developed their own in-house SD-WAN. The Palo had their own, and then uh, Aruba had their own. So that tells me that making SD-WAN is hard. I'm, yeah. I'm right there with you on that. I think that yeah. that's one of the bigger themes here. Is is there's a couple things. There's timing, and then there's uh, I think you know I, I kind of carve up the market several ways when I think about SD-WAN. And there's the routing companies that tacked on security and intelligence, and then there's the the security companies who tacked on routing, um, you know, and, and and then then you have these like kind of like corner case companies. Like we did WAN op, so we had an edge device, so we added SD WAN, and all of a sudden it's a lot more routing than what it used to be. But we had the application identification. But these companies who didn't really have anything, and so when I think about HPE and Aruba, they were not a router company. Like they just didn't have a routing product. They had branch technology that switches. They had access points, but they did not have like between the branches. And all of a sudden they're building a routing product. And it turns out that when you start off without a product and you start late in the market, <laughs> it's really hard to be competitive and to bring something to market that competes with, with the people that had a head start on you and also had the head start from having some sort of heritage that gave them routing tech. Yeah, I mean, look as, at, as a platform to start on. Look at where the highlight was for Aruba when they started pushing SD Branch. It wasn't the edge devices; it was ClearPass. Hey, ClearPass can run your network in your branch. 
edge gateways were almost an afterthought. They were needed to do connectivity, but the edge gateway didn't gain a lot of functionality until the edge services platform launched at Atmosphere this year. And even then, they're turning the edge services platform into like an analytics aggregation device. So I think that this was as much that they needed some kind of CPE. Um, and the last time that I knew that HPE owned a router was back when they had all that Comware stuff. And that wasn't even a punchline to a joke. That was the unfunny punchline to a different joke that somebody buried 14 comments down. It wasn't even a router. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it moved packets between two different networks, but that's about it. So I hey, think I know this, of one of those in production still. So be careful. <laughs> I found a Bay Network switch in production years ago. I'm not saying that things don't run forever, but but you know ultimately the, what's the goal here? The goal is is that they need hardware to deploy to get people on ramp to the cloud. And like you said, Jordan, it's not just edge connectivity anymore. It's application analytics. It's security. I mean, SASE is a thing. Lerner and Skarupa knew what they were doing when they pushed this. Oh, that yes, they could have picked a way better acronym. <laughs> I, I like I, I absolutely despise the acronym, but yes, it absolutely is a thing. Like it's part of like this is what I do all day, every day. I have conversations about SD WAN. I mean, that's just the reality of my job. And and this is what we're talking about. We're talking about exactly what you're saying. We're talking about cloud connectivity. We're talking about architectures that involve colos and cloud adjacency. We're talking about how do we get on-ramp and access to multi-cloud environments. And then how do we optimize applications both within our network and as they're leaving the network where we lose control um, to, to provide the best possible outcome. These are really hard questions. Like these are things that are that require a lot of uh, intelligence. And I feel like if you're if you're just building that baseline, like getting packets from A to B, like if you if you don't have that as a baseline before you start, you're it's a very uphill battle. It's not impossible, um, but it's it's a very uphill battle. And there's a couple other vendors on this list. So we talked about um, Palo Alto and CloudJetting. So Palo Alto did the same thing. They went after. They said, "Hey, we have the firewalls. We have the edge devices." They were one of the companies who said we were already positioned well, and they were. And they went to go build, and. Well, they haven't completely disowned their product yet, right? <laughs> they're not saying they're getting rid of um, the SD-WAN product that they built, but they went out and they bought CloudGenix. So, I mean, I think we can see what the writing on the wall here, right? Yeah. So we, we know where it's headed. And so they decided that even after putting that effort and investment into doing it themselves, that it probably was more advantageous to go buy a player that had some credibility. And so we see that happen there. And so I guess, you know, when I look at the market, who's left, <laughs> right? Because we've been That's talking for years. We've been talking for years about consolidation, right? The idea that the, the market's going to have to consolidate. We can't have, you know, depending on how you count, anywhere between 30 and 80 vendors who do SD-WAN. That's too much for the market to bear. There's got to be some consolidation. We've seen the most of the big guys pull people in now. HPE was one that was sitting out there who was like, okay, they were trying their own, and then they finally pulled somebody in. So the only other, like, major manufacturer I can think of that that is still trying to do it with their own tech and I mean, at least according to what I see in the market, seems to be struggling to get some footing is Juniper. So Juniper is a big OEM manufacturer that has a routing background, but their SD-WAN, I'm not hearing much about it, right? And so like, uh, for and from those that I have heard, it's been a struggle to get it implemented. And so I'm, you know, Juniper might be the only last big play left for an acquisition. So what happens to everybody else? <laughs> is, is this the race to the bottom now that everyone's been predicting? Are we, are we seeing that like if you're an SD-WAN vendor and we've lost our acquisition targets, now we've got to start combining with each other? Yeah. When you look at, so you, Juniper is one of the last buyers that's left because Dell doesn't care. <laughs> so who they But Dell buy? technically, I mean, Dell has one for the, for the minute. We'll oh, see whether or not they actually spin off VMware <laughs> and, and yeah, see Vantlet Cloud disappear, right? But, but like they, they actually have a viable product within at least you know some tangential stack. They can sell yeah. VMware's product and you know say, hey, we're Dell, you know, we're yeah. related to that. So technically, they they got one. But when you look at all the other vendors who are out there, I mean, who's who's the the last big vendor that's left that is doing pure play hardware only? It's Versa like riverbed and, and i and to be fair riverbed i would actually consider a higher tier because they're riverbed they've been doing wan ops since you know before the beginning of time but look at all the other ones look at ariaka oh so ariaka is probably the last unicorn that's left they they are worth you know a lot because they have a lot of customers but they're not doing pure play they're 
doing SD-WAN as a service. So they're, they're basically an MSP that will ship you this box and will negotiate with the, the uh, service providers and will do all the hard work for you, which is good because it means they have recurring revenue. It is also bad because it means they're just too big to swallow. And then who would buy them? I mean, cloud vendor doesn't care. Cloud vendor wants the hardware. They don't care about the, they don't care about the last mile. So cloud, I, I cloud vendors, cloud vendors building their own. I mean, like this, this is the writing on the wall. They're building, you know, look at AWS transit gateway. Look at what it does. If you're a strict AWS customer, it, there's going to be a point in the future where it makes complete sense just to not even run your own WAN and just pipe all your traffic to AWS and be done with it, right? Like that's the model that they're going towards. And, yeah. you know, I don't know how prevalent that's going to be with a with a single cloud vendor as we move forward. Um, you know, multi-cloud is a thing and people are putting workloads in different places. But, you know, like they, they're not going to go buy an SD-WAN vendor. They're just going to build their gateways. They're so far ahead of everybody else when it comes to software routing anyway and some of this other tech yeah. that they're just going to put together the stuff that they're already doing for themselves and just expose it to us. Um, as, as a product offering. Um, the Riverbed one is actually the one that I found most interesting with the Silver Peak deal. And, and the reason for me is, as I look at it is that I, I feel like Riverbed's really had a hard time getting a footing. Um, they kind of went after building their own. They were well positioned being uh, a WAN op vendor. They already had boxes at the edge. They saw that vision and it made a ton of sense. And then, uh, and then they went out and they did the Osito acquisition that really never really developed into anything. Um, it could have been a competitor with Meraki like it's the way I saw it is that, like they were they were kind of like a Meraki style cloud managed branch way in bring it all together under one one roof and it never really seemed to develop into something that people bought. Um, Riverbed pivoted and licensed Versa, you know, and now Riverbed has you know a really solid SD WAN tech that's going into their boxes. And their biggest competitor, right? If your win op is a priority to you and you want that that win op pedigree. Their biggest competitor now has some questions. HPE doesn't have the best track record of integrating acquisitions. If you are a Silver Peak customer right now, I'm not like running for the hills, but I'm definitely keeping an eye on what's going. If I haven't bought yet, do you buy Silver Peak right now? Like not knowing where it's going? Like, I mean, like, I, and this is just, this is the way I look at the market because I'm not saying that you shouldn't. What I am saying is that we don't know the outcome. And so if there's an opportunity for anybody in all of this, I think there's an opportunity for Riverbed. Because if they can get their story straight right now and get out there with a good piece of tech and be the WANOP vendor that doesn't have questions about their future, um, there's there's an opportunity. But I think part of the problem is the licensing deal. I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, Tom, because like you know the whole Riverbed Versa thing's a little different because Versa's out there. They were they were licensing to like a bunch of ISPs, but it wasn't necessarily to another vendor who made an SD WAN product. That's a unique unique setup there. It's always weird when I see this because like Cisco will do this. They'll go out and they'll invest like, you know, $5 million in a company. And everyone's like, oh, I wonder what Cisco's going to do with that investment. It's like, well, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to get paid when that company gets bought or they're going to buy that company and get their money back. They're not going to let it go out of business because that's not how Cisco wants to play. But I see what happened between Riverbed and Versa is basically step one. This is the courtship. If this works and this helps at Riverbed stay relevant in both WANOP and SD-WAN, they'd be stupid to not buy Versa outright and say, all right, we have customers, we have revenue, we have cash flow. Let's just make it official, put a ring on it. Because if Versa decides to get a better deal somewhere else, or worse yet, Juniper comes in, swoops in and buys Versa out from underneath Riverbed, what happens next? Yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, that is that is a really good question. Like, what happens next? It would leave them in a pretty bad spot. Um, well, I think that about covers the market. We I think probably did a little bit more than that that I was planning, but of course, there's just so much movement. It's always so interesting because there's so many companies and uh, so many moving parts. It's just one of those ones to hard hard to keep your uh, finger on the pulse of because it just seems to always be shifting <laughs> underneath your feet. Um, there was an interesting thing in the Network Collective Slack uh, today. Uh, related to SDN, which is kind of tangential uh, to what we're talking about here, and uh, and it was this uh, it was this very get off my lawn post, and we're definitely not going to attribute it. It was in the Nanog mailing list, and I mean, if you're familiar with that, you know exactly kind of what I'm talking about here. But it was like I've been doing SD WAN for twenty some odd years, you know, and that's because I've been doing L2 VPNs. Has SDN lost all its meaning? I mean, this was a question we were asking probably five or six years ago. 
when we had software defined data center was kind of the driving factor for SDN and everybody, I mean, it was the best thing since sliced bread and all the marketing came out. We went through the whole hype cycle. I feel to me at least like some of that's been refined. So when we talk about software defined data center, there's kind of an idea around what that looks like. When we talk about SD-WAN, there's kind of an idea around what that looks like and what features are there. But there's still people out there who are saying, you know, like uh, ISPs have been doing SD-WAN all along. I'm like, eh, kind of, you know, like, you know, like not really, but kind of. So I, I'm curious, like, Chris, I'm going to point to you first. I'd like to hear your take and then we'll go from there. I mean, I've never run, you know, what would truly be considered SDN. Uh, myself in production but one of the things that i see people getting hung up along getting hung up with quite a bit is orchestration versus uh actual central controller that's making forwarding decisions um so take like segment routing we had that really good discussion uh, the other day with uh jeff and nick uh, about segment routing and talking about the pce and where that fits in you know that is sdn you know that is a device you know, a centralized point that has an entire view of the network and actually makes decisions on forwarding. Now, it's different than what we saw with a lot of the older models. Well, not older, but, you know, I guess some of the earlier models around, like, actually sending things up to a controller, even ARP, like with OpenFlow, you know, stuff like that, all the way to the controller, which doesn't work on the WAN <laughs> at all. You know, that's something that could only possibly work in a data center, um, at least in my view. So, you know, there's that centralized controller that's making forwarding decisions. And then there's orchestration. Like, um, I also in that Nanog thre thread, I saw somebody say something along the lines of, well, in the small, medium business space, Ubiquity has SDN, which, you know, to anyone who has ever used Ubiquity as Unify, that's a pretty laughable claim, at least in the enterprise context. You know, at best, it's just centralized configuration management. So has it lost all meaning? I mean, I think there's people that are definitely doing it and uh using it but i think there's still so many people that do not understand what it is at all even myself included but it's definitely one of those very nebulous things that just has turned into a lot of marketing and has really got co-opted by marketing now everybody is calling their product sdn which i think uh someone made a comment in the network collective slack which was like well my routers run software is that not software defined networking <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this this is the same, you know, uh, you know, take the argument to absurdity just for the point of point, you know, like, right, you know, uh, like, they're clearly we've been doing software to some degree, we've had central orchestration in places in our network before that's not new. Um, you know, like automation isn't new. It's, it, it's to me, it's, it's the, it's almost what you brought up. It's the fabric. It's the idea that we're treating the network rather than as a bunch of independent nodes that are exchanging information. Instead of treating the network that way, we're treating it as a fabric. We're treating it as a unit. So when we add something in, everything else is aware of it. Everyone else understands what's going on. Now you can make the argument that routing protocol is that. I exchange information. I know all of the links I have. I know all my edges, my vertices. That all gets exchanged in the database, and the database is maintained in the same every, everywhere around. But it's distributed. There's no central entity that's collecting that information, and we don't still don't have an end-to-end -end picture. We do of what the topology looks like, but we don't from a performance perspective. We don't, and we can't make decisions about. We can only make decisions about the performance around the links that are immediately next to me not the ones that are two or three hops away from me. And that's where, to me, like it, it's, a, it's an ambiguous differentiation because what is it that empowers that? Well, what empowers that is we're building tunnels. Well, tunnels aren't new, <laughs> you know? But the reality is, is it's, the, it's the hybrid combination of all those things, a controller that has end-to-end -end visibility, you know, tunnels and overlays so that we, you know, we don't care so much about the un the underlay, but we know so much about, you know, what the performance is from endpoint to endpoint in our fabric and can make decisions intelligently. Um, some form of central control about route decision because there's varying degrees. Like you said, OpenFlow early on where you could go all the way up to the top <laughs> for every single decision or you could, you know, uh, you know, I think we've landed at the idea that we still need distributed flow decisions to be made, but the policy needs to dictate what each device does with a whole network context. And so there's like this brain that's operating, that's distributing its intelligence to all these individual devices to try to make them all act. They're acting independently, right? But they're acting with this coordinated fashion and that's really the difference. And that's way different than something like an L2 VPN. Now, maybe they built that, you know, like I don't know this guy or, or, or what network he works on. It sounds like he works for an ISP if he's building L2 VPNs. There's not a whole lot of enterprise places that do that, right? But like, 
And they could have built an orchestration thing that sat over the top that maybe made this thing look end to end. But if they did that, it's not L2 VPN that was this SDN. It was the app they built on top of it that they didn't sell, right? They built SDN for themselves, which is A, really impressive if they did it. And B, I can't imagine what it takes to maintain that when you build it internally and only build it for one customer. And at the scale of a service provider, it very well might make sense. But the scale for an enterprise, <laughs> there's just no way, right? There's just no way that makes sense. And so it makes sense to see these things hitting the market as, as viable products that you can buy rather than something that you make for yourself. And even then, it's still orchestration at best, which is part of SDN, but I don't think it's the whole picture. Right. Well, I mean, it, it depends on how far they went down the rabbit hole, sure. <laughs> right? Like, who knows? So we want to take a break to tell you more about today's sponsor, Unimus. Unimus is a network automation and configuration management solution, and it's designed for fast deployment network-wide and for ease of use. Now, during the past couple episodes, we've talked about Unimus's network automation functionality, as well as the configuration backup and change management features. Today, we are talking about configuration audits and how Unimus can help you validate the current running state of the network. Now, it's fairly common to need to find configuration items across the entire network. Things like show me all switch ports on a particular VLAN or find a firewall rule for a particular subnet. These should be things you can do in a matter of seconds. But commonly, these things take many terminal windows and a considerable amount of time. Unimus makes the process of searching through your entire network's configuration into nothing more than a couple of clicks and a few keystrokes. Since Unimus already holds all this information, these configuration files for the purposes of backup, you can easily search through all device configuration in a single place with options for things like complex regular expression searches and time ranges. So as an example, to find all ports on the network in VLAN 1000, you simply open the config search in Unimus, type in VLAN 1000, and it would find all ports configured for this VLAN across the network. So in addition to configuration searches, you can also check into the current running state of the network. We previously talked about network automation in Unimus for automating network-wide configuration changes. However, you can also use Unimus to easily retrieve any arbitrary command output across your entire network. As an example, if you wanted to check the frequency of all access points across your network, you can easily write a command that would output the frequency and push this to all of your APs. Unimus automates this command push and then collects the resulting outputs for analysis. Even if you have 200 APs, these will be running on only a handful of frequencies. So Unimus automatically groups the command outputs. So instead of having to look through the output of 200 unique devices, you would only see a list of the unique device outputs, which in this case would be the frequencies that your APs are running on. Now under each of these, you'll see a list of the devices that returned that specific output. So in effect, Unimus would automatically sort the output per frequency, and you can easily see which APs are running on which frequencies due to this output grouping. Combining the config search and the network automation features of Unimus for both pulling data from the network and for deploying changes network-wide, you can easily perform network-wide audits and changes in minutes, rather than fighting with dozens of terminal windows. Now, Unimus runs on-premises, it's multi-tenant ready, and it supports more than 140 different network device types across over 90 vendors. You can get a free, no obligation, unlimited license trial, or to schedule a short technical demo call at unimus.net slash nc. I think, I think for our next topic, I wanna to talk about tools. So we're living through an interesting time, right? I swear I'm not gonna talk about the new normal, <laughs> like, but, but, but the idea is we've all had to adapt, right? Uh, there's been some of us are doing what we've always done, uh, but obviously under a different context. Some people have had to make some big adjustments from not working in an office and coming home and, and making big changes. And I really like, I think this is a good opportunity to talk about the tools that we're using. Has there been anything that's, that's kind of like risen to the surface? It's like, wow, that wasn't very valuable to me before, but now all of a sudden I'm using it all the time. As, and, and, and conversely, are there any tools that were like, yeah, that's a great tool. I use that all the time. But now that we're work from home, I hate it. <laughs> I really want it to die a fiery death. Um, video calls. <laughs> <laughs> video calls. Uh, yeah, I think video calls. I think everyone's kind of there. There's fatigue on that for sure. Tom is sitting there nodding his head because he does this all day, every day. Um, I've been very intentional about actually just turning off my video. I don't know about you guys, but like initially it was like, hey, let's all get together. I still feel like there's value in that on a very paced 
basis. I mean, we threw a couple happy hours because at the time it was just like social interaction needed to happen and this was the only path we had. Then it felt like everything kind of normalized and it's like, okay, we're here. You're like, we're, we're in this thing and I'm really kind of tired of having to turn on my video every time I get on a phone call. It goes back to the problem we've been having for years. I mean, I could look around here and find the ribbon that, that uh, somebody sent me that said I survived another conference call that should have been an email. We now feel that everything has to be discussed face-to-face, in person, on Zoom, WebEx, GoToMeeting. Does anybody even use GoToMeeting anymore? It's, we got to, the tool is not the solution. We've got to fix the problem before we apply a tool to it. Because if it's something that shouldn't have been a meeting in the first place, Zoom ain't going to make it any easier. And so that's, you know, and, and I fully support the idea of using zoom where it makes sense. I mean, we're using zoom a lot for tech field day, but those are meetings that need to happen. Tech field day can't happen over email, but if this is something that's like a status update on a project, I can give you a status update, type it out in 10 minutes and be done. I don't need to sit here and stare at you to say that. And I, I was actually shocked by the number of phone calls that I had scheduled at the beginning of the pandemic that suddenly elevated to video calls for no reason like i get it we're missing out on seeing other people but that doesn't mean that every call has to be something that we have to see each other now i mean we all live in train wrecks of an office i mean i'm trying to decipher what network tony's got behind him right now but like if i have to like completely rearrange my office just to call you for five minutes or like if i have to you know change my entire wardrobe for a work from home call I'm going to start questioning what the purpose of that is. Yeah, I think we're all there. <laughs> At least everyone on this call, and I've been hearing it pretty consistently, and I, I definitely have seen a drop-off just with my work calls about people who are willing to jump on video. Initially, it was everybody. Um, and now it's kind of it's kind of going back to the way that it was before. We were we were remote to begin with, so my team specifically. So like it was really funny because we all did this anyway, and then all of a sudden we're all on video. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. We were already remote. Like, why all of a sudden did this change, right? And again, I think it was just that, you know, that we felt it worst at the beginning because it was, we knew what we were missing out on. I feel like as things have kind of equalized out, we're like, okay, like, you know, like I still need to see people, but I'm being more selective about how I do video. Um, Tony, you've been quiet over there. I just want to make sure you're not asleep after those long cutovers. You doing a lot of video calls for work? I appreciate it. Um, you know, I kind of I kind of follow the same trend I think that you've been discussing, which was when uh, when March fifteenth started, and that's when we all started staying home in in my region. Um, we were doing morning stand up calls, and not for meetings, just to everyone put their video on, drink coffee, talk about their mornings as we all got their day started. And some people kept that going throughout the entire day, just a an ongoing video chat, just to pop in and say hey. And I think probably after a month of doing that, I, I did it every day. After about a month of doing that, I hit a brick wall and I was just like, you know what, I, I, I'm kind of done with, with video. And um, I, I don't log in much anymore. Um, I don't have to do video chats. My team doesn't operate that way. Um, but voluntarily, I don't hop on video chats very often anymore. Uh, I think we've, we've equalized, you know, kind of like as you discussed, things have transitioned over the last 100 days or so. And... Um, uh, but but I want to point out when you were talking about tools and all of these video chat vendors, I mean, I just can't believe how stupid easy it is to have a large group video chat. I mean, what an awesome time to actually for this to be happening. You know, everyone's seen those memes that says like, you know, could you imagine the pandemic when you had this? And it's a picture of like the old Nokia little brick phones, you know, with dial up Internet. But here we have, you know, gigabit to our house and and video chat and 1080p that we can talk with 30 people if we want i mean it couldn't couldn't be easier for us there's a lot of truth in that i like the fact that we have been able to maintain some sense of social normalcy or as close to it as we could possibly replicate via the internet um is is a huge deal um this is the first time and throughout all of history that this was possible during a pandemic and so, you know, we're kind of living through an interesting time. And, and, you know, from here on out, I imagine it's going to be the same, right? There's there's going to be, it's going to change the way that we, we handle these things. And we see it's already changing the face of business, right? It's already, people are already talking about how it's going to change the way that we do business. And this isn't just pundits talking about it. This is leaders of businesses who are like, 
I'm not so sure about the office anymore or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like we're getting along just fine. It's, it's changing things, but it is a very interesting time. Um, and it's also interesting to be in networking. I've said this very early on, like I could not be more proud to be in this profession during this pandemic because it's never been more important. It's never been more important to be able to deliver packets from one end of the world to the other because that's all we got, <laughs> you know, like it's all we've got. Um, and so that's uh, there's there's value in that for sure. Uh, so how about back to back to the question? Um, video conferencing, clearly uh, fatigue. Any other tools out there that have kind of risen to the surface as things that have been valuable? I put a lot of uh, effort into just getting my desk set up well at home. Uh, right. And luckily, I started doing it before the pandemic really became a thing to at least here in America um, and getting a standing desk is absolutely part of it. And my desk raises. So that was absolutely helpful. Yeah, I, I can't. I'm not on that same boat. What you guys don't see, even though this is a podcast and no one can see it, we see each other right now. What you guys don't see, my desk is a wreck. <laughs> it, it is an absolute disaster. I would be embarrassed to show you. You got a new um, chair, though. This junky thing. I like, didn't you go out and get a new chair? You were telling me you were going to go get a new chair. It was the cheapest one from Office Depot. <laughs> it was the last one they had. And it's terrible. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm definitely suffering here by not having a, uh, a nice workspace. Um, I still get all my work done and everything. It's just not as neat and productive and, and functional as it could be. I can't wait to get back to the office personally. Chris, you were uh, mentioning something. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to use the full disclaimer here because, uh, because <laughs> as you know, by this point in the show, they are sponsoring this show, but you actually had a really interesting use case with Unimus where, um, you know, like we were, we were talking and, and, and you said something about like, you were able to query your whole environment. Like you were, you yeah. were really happy about something that you, <laughs> that happened and you were just like, yeah. you were thrilled about it. So I want to hear about it. Like, what is this tool? How does it help you? Yeah, so uh, I was introduced to Unimus uh, by Jordan. I believe you, uh, Nick Braulio, and Kevin Myers were all pretty hot about it. And um, so I gave it a try, downloaded it, got the free trial, which gave me um, five licenses. Um, basically, just a little background for folks who aren't familiar. Um, Unimus is a few things, but primarily it's a configuration backup tool for your network gear. So similar to Rancid of the old days or Oxidize of now, uh, Unimus basically logs into your network equipment, you know, API or not, it's all command line, and just, you know, issues the appropriate show command, pulls that data out, stores it into a database, and it allows you to do a few things. Um, you can query, you know, the existing config on devices, so you can just search for terms. Um, you can also see differences in time uh, of devices, so if you need to answer that ultimate troubleshooting question of, well, what changed? Um, there you go. You log in there. It's very useful because you could go in and pull a diff between, you know, say you go to a core switch and you pull a diff from today versus a week ago. You can see exactly the lines that have changed. Uh, you can even do multi-device diff, which is really nice. Um, and, it, and I promise I'm not getting paid to say this. I sound like I'm just reading a. I was going to say the back I, of the box, I, but I'm being I'm being very careful about this because like we actually are being paid by Unimus right now, right? Like they're running ads. <laughs> I swear to God, this wasn't planned. Like that's not no, what this, this was. Like this is literally just a tool that you that maybe because of our advertising, right? It is is you you came across and it's useful, yes. so it's worth mentioning, right? Yeah. No, and, and this is all genuine like experience. So we actually used to use Oxidized for this function, uh, which is a free open source. A uh, piece of software, it's written in uh, Ruby mostly, the device templates, which uh, from my perspective is difficult to maintain because I'm barely competent in Python, uh, let alone Ruby. So, you know, maintaining those device uh, models, if they weren't exactly what I needed or if I needed a specific device was very cumbersome. And, um, you know, we're a small limber team, and so it wasn't really maintainable to do. So we picked up Unimus just to try it out. Um, it's so cheap. It's like five bucks or four bucks per device uh, per year. Don't quote me on that. That sounds right. <laughs> There's like an unlimited license too. That yeah. like once you get up to a certain amount, like it, it is like if you're used to buying software anywhere, like it's affordable. <laughs> like I, it's yeah. not going to break your bank, your budget. Um, yeah. It, that's one of the, when I saw it, it's like, okay, this is a cool tool. Now I was kind of like, what's the price shot? You know, what's the sticker shot going to be? Mm -hmm. And I looked at it. The shock was the other direction. Yeah, like, absolutely. I can't remember the last time 
I bought a tool. Now it's very niche. It does what it does, right? But you had a, I think your use case today yeah. was like you were looking up SSH versions. You wanted to find which version was, or which version was running. So, so that's the other thing it does. So it does the config backup, which is really great from an audit standpoint or from just a troubleshooting standpoint. But the other thing it lets you do is uh, Fisher price level of like network automation um, is what I would probably say. So it's, it's not an advanced tool for this. Um, however, since it already has credentials uh, to log in to all of your network gear that you're pulling backups of, um, they've added a pretty cool feature where you can run commands on network gear and get the results back. So we are in the middle of working through, you know, vulnerability remediations as is just a constant cycle, you know, dealing with, you know, life cycle management of our, of our gear and making sure that we are up to date on things. And so one of the things we have run across is, you know, old SSH versions on the network. So I wanted just to kind of validate on the network gear, what version of SSH we're running to see if there was anything that got missed by the scan, right? Because those scans are just a point in time. If a site's offline, you know, <laughs> or it could do to power outages, which, you know, we see stuff like that all the time. Well, maybe it didn't get picked up. So literally in five minutes, I was able to just go and tell Unimus to run the command, you know, show IP SSH, pipe it to exclude everything except for the version number. And it outputs that. And what it does is it puts it into these really nice buckets. So it groups the output by output. So the devices that returned version 2.0 went into one output group and it, you know, counts them up, says, okay, 75 devices or whatever. And then the devices that ran, were running SSH version one or just lower than two go into another bucket. So it does a lot more than um, just running the commands. It also has a little bit of logic that it'll group things together. I kind of liken it to running a bunch of things in secure CRT all at once. That's what I used to do back in the day, you know, just <laughs> open up a bunch of tabs, secure CRT, you know, send commands to yeah. all sessions. It's, it's a it chat in. window for secure yep. CRT, but without yep. having to open all the tabs, exactly. just go in and run it. Yeah, it is pretty slick. And and you did that. And I'm like, okay, here's yet another, like I, I saw this tool and I was like, oh yeah, like I'd, I'd, I'd be all over this if I was back at ops. Like, you know, like it, yeah, it's exactly. relatively inexpensive and, and it would, you know, it, like you said, uh, <laughs> Fisher price may not be the nicest way to put it, <laughs> but uh, it is, it is not, it's not meant to be right. It's not Ansible. Right. It's not, you know, it's not puppet. It's not a framework in the same way that that is, but it's not what they're trying to be. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, that's cool. Uh, that was a cool use case. And so uh, definitely worth checking out. And again, full disclosure, they are sponsoring, but that message wasn't sponsored. <laughs> I had was, a good discussion that was Chris about sharing it. just what was going on with uh, with what he had going on. Yeah, yeah, I had a good discussion about it with another engineer uh, that I work with, and uh, you know, we were talking about well, you know, Ansible would be better for automation. You know, if you, for example, were wanting to run against multiple devices, right, and you wanted to just abstract that away so that you didn't have to do it. You know, the command on Juniper is different or whatever. Yeah, but. The beauty of this was quick and dirty, didn't have to dust out my YAML skills or lack thereof, and I was off to the races. Very cool. So one of the tools that I've I've come across recently, um, it's completely different because I spend most of my time doing presentations um, and talking to customers. It's, I, it's been out there, and it's been out there for a while, so maybe people are aware of it, maybe they're not, but it's called Miro, M-I-R-O. It's, uh, it's a collaborative whiteboard tool. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that we had a challenge for is I do a lot of like workshops where I work with a customer, we work on their network and like, Hey, let's draw it on the whiteboard. And we start taking out, you know, our markers to it and showing how SD-WAN or any of the new technologies can affect their network or how it would change or what a topology would look like in remote. That's been a big challenge. It's been a big challenge to, to do a whiteboard, uh, because most of the tech that's out there just kind of lacks the definition or detail or just is, is clunky. Um, and one of the things that I definitely wanted to do is like, I take most of my calls from my laptop, but my iPad has the capability for all the drawing and all that. So I wanted to find a tool that I could, I could sync between the two. And the first one that we looked at as a team was actually looking at, uh, like using Microsoft OneNote because OneNote syncs, um, and it has a fairly decent drawing tool, uh, in there as well. The problem is that sync is a little slow. 
So I can be sitting there talking about it, and it might be up to 30 seconds after I'm talking about something and adding it. And I'm like, I kept tripping over this because it wasn't real time or wasn't near real time. And I found that Miro is. And so it's really cool. I'm having a meeting, and I have the meeting up. I can have video up or, or whatever. And then I can share my desktop, which has the Miro app up on it. But I can use my iPad and the Miro app on my iPad and do the drawing on it so that... I have all the dexterity of the iPad and the Apple Pencil and all that other stuff, but the screen share is happening from my desktop. I don't have to join the meeting twice. The sync happens pretty cleanly. Um, everything about it I've been pretty happy with, and so that's the tool that stood out to me recently because I've used it quite a bit uh, in having conversations with customers and that collaborative whiteboard, and I'm looking again. You know, <laughs> Tom brought it up earlier. I'm looking at the whiteboard behind Tony. Like It's really hard to share a whiteboard on video. It's really hard to do that. And then to be able to take it to the next step and say, you know, invite the customer to come on and, and participate in that. Or if you're working as a team to have multiple team members come on and work on the same, the same whiteboard and, and exchange and collaborate with ideas. Um, I know it's not the only one out there, but it's the one that's worked for, for me. And uh, that's the one that's kind of risen to the surface. You know, that makes me think of uh, something I discovered recently since we're talking about diagrams, uh, I recently discovered that with draw.io, um, I think they rebranded to diagrams.net or something. With draw.io, you can save your diagrams uh, as a PNG file that can be viewed, of course, by any image viewer. However, somehow in the file, they actually embed the XML of their entire data structure for the diagram. So what you can do is in draw.io, you can open that PNG back up and edit it without like having to deal with rasterization or anything. It's just just the way it was. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so my use case for that has been uh, with documentation. So the way I do documentation is just simple markdown um, stored in a Git repo. So what that allows me to do that's really helpful, and I've been working on a blog post, but my blog is severely and criminally neglected. <laughs> but Welcome basically what, yeah, <laughs> what that allows you to do is save that just one file, do an inline uh, insertion of that diagram, into your documentation if you're doing markdown, which if you load it on GitHub or whatever your Git you know, viewing system is, like GitLab or something, um, you can actually view the document in line, but then if you need to go back and edit it, you just edit that PNG. Really simplifies the workflow versus having to like do a Visio, export PNG, save that, Git add, Git commit, <laughs> do all that workflow. You can even edit directly from GitHub uh, in draw.io. Right, so that means that you're not changing your reference in your markdown file. So as you go to update things, the the drawing exactly. gets updated automatically. That's that's actually really cool. It's uh, I stumbled it's like, across it. That's very neat. Um, I have one more topic I want to talk about. We're kind of getting towards the end of this here episode, and I think this one might spark some conversation. So I think we need to get to it pretty quickly. So Tony, you've been spending a lot of time with support. You just uh, you just mentioned the fact that you had a had a cutover that kind of. Kind of went downhill a bit yeah. and uh, went sideways. Went sideways. Went sideways, and uh, and and I keep hearing, and I keep hearing it. I don't know if it's just you know the people I surround myself with. I don't know if it's impressions. I don't know what it is, but I kind of get this growing sense that the support organizations of our major vendors have been deteriorating. And I'm I'm just kind of curious if that's been your experience, Tony and and, and Chris and mm -hmm. Tom. I don't you know. Tom, you're far enough out like me, like that you're not dealing with this all the time. But I, I am kind of curious, like what what your what your take is uh, on that, because I think that that's that's an interesting trend if it's true. Yeah. So so what I'll say about that is um, I've been fortunate enough to work with lots of projects and to work with TAC and different uh, support uh, systems for many different vendors. So I have a, a little bit of a wide experience here, and each one is a little different. And I think every engineer. Uh, whether it's network engineer or what have you, has the experience of calling tech and has this like terrible nightmare story that they could share. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to add to that or to, to, to differ from that, I just don't want to tell a nightmare story, is that I think your tech experience can be better. It can be better by bef not just befriending, but having a good relationship with your account manager and your sales engineers. The people who actually show up to your office and helped you buy the product and helped you acquire it. They're the people who can help fast track your tech cases. They're the people who can help get escalation more quickly. Um, they're the people who can be the go-between between support 
Um, and definitely, we had a, a situation, which is now this morning, uh, at about 2 a.m. this morning, go sideways on us. And because of our customer, uh, we don't have regular commercial support. We have government support. So government support is not 24-7. It's government hours, Monday through Friday, uh, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m., roughly. It, it depends on the vendor. And... Um, when you're calling at 2 a.m., there is no support. So, so how do you do that? You know, so so we just have to roll with the punches and 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 make it happen when people and the support teams are available. But one of the things that helped us with that is we knew this was an issue before tonight. So we contacted our account manager, we contacted our sales engineer, and they started the TAC case for us the night before. We actually talked to the SMEs of the product the night before. Even though support didn't, wasn't officially available at 2 a.m., we already had the ticket open, we already had a case number, we already had all that reference material ready. So when they come back online, we can jump right in. And I wasn't dealing with it, another engineer was dealing with it this morning once they were available, but TAC cases, I don't know if they're getting worse or getting better, but what can help you is your relationships with the vendors. Um, not everyone has that opportunity. Not every engineer has the sales engineer and the account manager's phone number that they can call. Um, but it's great to have that. And maybe before you're doing an overnight cutover, if there are any junior engineers listening, here's the tip, right? Make sure your sales engineers and account managers know that you guys are doing an important cutover the night and that they can maybe open a tech case if you have a legitimate issue or make themselves available to help fast track things the next morning for you. Um, that is super helpful and makes for a great relationship. So even though we had something go sideways, I feel very confident still with um, with the level of support that we got. That's good. I, I we've we flirted with the idea of doing a show about how to kind of like, you know, best approach tack cases. I think it's something I still want to do because I'm with you. Uh, there there are things you can do. Things I've learned over many years watching other engineers. Uh, one of the things you can do is like you said, a preemptive case. Um, for upgrades, uh, there are certain technologies that I won't touch without a preemptive case, um, just just because you know the the technology is not stable enough to do it, and I need someone on the call and someone ready and, and willing to go. There's a way to navigate that as well, because sometimes they'll open a preemptive case but not assign an engineer, and then you're stuck waiting for the engineer once something does go sideways. And so sometimes it's in, insisting on the fact that no, I need an engineer on the phone at this time in this place. Here's the WebEx. You know, like this is this is all the stuff you need to be there because uh, because it needs to happen and it's critical. Uh, it's easier to demand that for you know data center switches than it is for you know upgrading your ninety two hundreds or something. I don't know. You know, like updating a closet is probably not going to carry the same clout. But when you're upgrading the switch, you paid you know uh, several hundred thousand dollars for maybe uh, maybe they could be on the phone when you do the upgrade that one time. You know five years after you bought it or what after so uh so no the uh there's there's definitely a process and of course there's always regular things that tack collects like there's going to be things that they ask for every single time they're going to want to know what changed they're going to want logs they're going to if you're cisco show tech support or you know fill in the blank for whatever other vendor you have there's just some general stuff that you can collect preemptively if you're going to open a tack case like reactively <laughs> to throw it in there i feel like there's a whole laundry list of things people should have a checklist <laughs> for their tack cases um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know because people always talk about the bad cases, right? So, you know, like, is it really going downhill? This is the reason why I have the question. I don't really know. I don't know because I think that people always highlight the negative experiences. This is true for reviews is right. You know, like you could go on Amazon and read reviews and assuming that they're not completely fake, you've got, run them through fake spot. You have to give a bias <laughs> towards the mm -hmm. fact that only people who were irritated are the ones who went to go write a review. <laughs> right, mm -hmm. like you have to understand and build that into your interpretation of the results, and I kind of feel like that's true here for tech cases as well. People only talk about the bad ones. People don't talk about the ones that go well. They don't talk about the ones where they get the good engineer. They don't talk about the ones where, like you know, like it was it was there. But I'm hearing it more often than I used to, and that's kind of the baseline. Is is like, am I hearing it more because I'm you know <laughs> a host on a podcast and people like to complain to somebody who might be able to talk <laughs> about it or am I hearing it more because it's really what's going on I don't really know uh, but it seems to be a consistent theme I'm hearing more and more often and it's not one vendor it's not like just to be clear like I'm not picking on Cisco or Juniper or Palo or anybody here like this is just a broad broad brushstroke theme I will say that I've seen it decline a little bit um, during the pandemic personally just in my anecdotal experience um, However, I think, you know, 
what you brought up, Tony, is really kind of the key is that, you know, your your account manager relationships are very important, but also don't forget that the tech engineer you're working on is a human, you know, and you're, you're going to get into that. It may be a short relationship, but you're going to get in out of that relationship what you put into it, whether that's RSIs or show tech support, or also just being kind. I think uh, a lot of times people on the tech side really kind of get the the brunt end of it because, you know, people are calling in while they're stressed out, you know, oh, yeah, there's we're losing a million dollars an hour or something like that, which doesn't really get you anywhere. Just treat the person like a human and please answer their questions. You know, don't just say, oh, that's not important. You know, don't look at that. You know, I think that actually having respect for your engineer that you're working with is very important and goes a very long way. Man, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I agree with you, but I feel like that's a two-edged sword, right? It, when you call in and every tier one engineer you get has not been helpful, it's yeah. hard to say, I'm going to go through the process and spend this time with you and then go through the wrangling of you don't want to release this call because that doesn't look good for your statistics, but I really need mm. someone who knows what they're doing, right? And so like there's there's a balance there between not being an egotistical jerk and then also navigating the process that best enables your company to find success. And I feel yeah. like they're a bit at odds, especially when we're talking about tier one, um, because I mean, let, let's face it, like all of us on this call and probably a lot of people listening have far more experience than the tier one person who's picking up the phone, right? Like, <laughs> like we could explain a lot more and it's not that the tier ones is on, uh, is not helpful because they tend to be very focused. Like they're going to be in one product where we have lots of experience across many products. Um, so maybe, maybe they do have some insight and they are absolutely worth listening to, but the moment they start searching, <laughs> you know, like you need to be proactive because they're not going to want to let that call go because it's going to not look good because they couldn't solve it, you know, like, and these stats get tracked about, you know, how often do you have to escalate beyond? And there's a, there's a whole nuance to the whole process. And I agree with you. There's no excuse to ever treat someone not like a human. Like you have to be nice. And I've, I've fallen prey to this where I've been frustrated and I've not treated tech people as nice as I could have. Like, I mean, like, just to be bluntly honest. And it's things I regret because I'm like, the reality at the end of the day is they're just a person like me who's picking up a phone trying to do a job, right? Like they understand I'm under pressure, <laughs> but me yelling at them is not going to make it go any faster, right? And, and so like some of that is just maturing and recognizing the fact that, hey, we're all trying to get things done. Uh, but the other side, like if you have a strategy and a way to approach it. So Tony, I think that we need to do that show. I think we need to, to, to definitely explore that topic a bit further. Oh, yeah. One other thing I'll add there. Um, tack calls, especially at two in the morning, are not a time for pride. So don't lie to your tech engineer, especially when they ask you what changed. Um, you better know exactly what's going on. You better not try to get cute with, well, I think I might have typed this command in, but I don't remember. And definitely don't get upset at them when the solution was super easy because they're doing their job. And I have been on that side. So I did six months of professional support for gateway computers back when they outsourced. And the number of times that people would, I, they would call and be like, this this broke. And I'm going through my list of things going, that doesn't break. Um, what did you do? But of course, I can't say, what did you do? I had to be cute. And eventually it was, oh, well, I installed Deer Hunter on my Mac or my uh, computer. I'm like, yeah, that does exactly what you just described. So we're going to have to completely rebuild your Winsock stack. And they're like, well should I have told you that at the beginning of the call? And I'm looking at my watch and like a 25 minute average call time going, yep. If you'd have told me that 20 minutes ago, we'd already be off the phone. Yeah. That, They're there to help oh. you. Don't hide things from them. What they know only can help you. It's like being a parent. It's like when you know, when your kids are lying to you, tack knows when you're lying to them and they're <laughs> going to do the exact same thing you do as a parent. Really? Who got the ice cream out of the freezer? Who <laughs> got the ice cream out of the freezer? All right, guys, I think it's time that we uh, that we about wrap it up here. Uh, before we go, um, I'd like everyone to have an opportunity to share where people might find them. Uh, Tom, I'm going to pick on you because you do this all the time. Where can people find you? You write things all the time. Where can they go? 
I'm all over the internet at this point. If you want to follow my personal uh, feed, you can always go to uh, twitter.com. Networking Nerd is me. Um, NetworkingNerd.net is the blog. If you want to see my professional stuff, head over to gestaltit.com. If you want to see my Bruce Wayne job, you can head over to techfieldday.com. And if you're watching this uh, the week last week of July, make sure you tune in for some awesome Mobility Field Day content. Awesome. Chris, you mentioned you have a blog. You said that's woefully out of date. Let's get people there so that gets you a little bit more pressure to write some stuff. So so what's the blog? Put it out there. <laughs> the criminal, criminally neglected blog is slash 64.tech. That's uh, the word slash the number is 64.tech. And then uh, I do have a Twitter, finally, at Cranky Netman. At Cranky Netman. <laughs> Sounds appropriate. Because, you know, everybody wants the Cranky Network Engineer. That's the good, that's a good look. <laughs> Tony, uh, after you've gotten some sleep, where can people find you? All day, all night on uh, at Show IP Interface Brief on Twitter. Uh, go to my blog and read my post from a few months ago from when I attended Tech Field Day. It was a really awesome experience. And that's uh, showipinterfacebrief.blogspot.com. And you can listen to me on your fine podcast, The Network Collective. <laughs> All right. So uh, if you're looking for me and you, you haven't found me yet, that's surprising, but I'm at BC Jordo on Twitter. Um, you find me by my name on, on LinkedIn, uh, Jordan Martin. You just search for it there. If you enjoy this episode, there's a bunch of them just like it. Lots of networking goodness. You can find it on networkcollective.com. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe and have these things pushed to you as soon as they're released, uh, we can be found on all the regular podcast sites like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, but the, probably the best place to go is actually our website because that's where all those links are. Um, I'd also like to call attention to the fact that we have uh, an ability to support the show. Obviously, it takes a lot of time and effort and, and money to put this all together. Uh, you know, ads are part of the reality of life, but we like to keep that to a minimum. And so if you uh, consume the show regularly, uh, we'd love it to have you consider uh, supporting the show. You just go to networkcollective.com and click on support. Um, it's not expensive and supporting gets you access to our Slack, which is a pretty cool resource, absolutely worth getting into. Um, so go check it out. That's a good place to go. Um, if you'd like to engage with us on social media, we're at NetCollectivePC on Twitter. Uh, same thing. You can uh, search for us on LinkedIn and Facebook. And I think that about wraps it up. Uh, so thank you guys for joining the show. Thanks to everyone who's, who stuck with us and listened to us ch chat around the virtual roundtable today. And uh, we'll uh, see you next time.